Welcome to Language Chats. This is a podcast for language lovers in Australia and beyond, where we share our experiences of language learning with you, as well as the stories of other Australians and a few international guests who love learning, working with and communicating using other languages. I'm Beck. And I'm Penny. And we'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land of which we're recording today, the Wadarung people, Wurundjeri people and the Darug country people, and pay our respects to elders past and present. And in our episode today, we have a guest joining us, Sheila Ngokfam. Welcome, Sheila. Hi, thanks so much for having me on the um, podcast. Oh, we're excited to have you here. Thank you. We're always excited to have guests. We love having guests join us. We do. We <laughs> to be a guest, so. <laughs> Before we, we jump into all the questions, would you be able to just give our listeners a quick little insight into who Sheila is and what you're about and where you're from. Gosh, that's um, always so hard for me to answer in a succinct way. <laughs> um, but, yeah, essentially, um, yeah, so my name is Sheila Farm. I'm based in um, Sydney, uh, as acknowledged earlier as on Darug land. And so that basically means southwest Sydney is where I mostly spend most of my time. Um, I'm married with two kids and I'm trying to raise them um, bilingually in Vietnamese and English. So Vietnamese is my first language. Um, yeah, and I'm, you know, professionally, I'm sort of spread across different domains. So I'm, I'm a writer. Um, I do a lot of kind of literary writing as well as journalism. I do some radio producing work as well and podcasts. I also um, am trying to finish a PhD at the moment, um, hopefully this year, in um, women's health, looking at women's experiences of gestational diabetes. And I uh, also lecture casually in public health as well. So um, it's a bit complicated to explain, like, um, yeah, but I kind of work across um, different areas. Well, that's amazing. And I don't think I realised that your background involved this health aspect as well, the, the PhD and the, the lecturing. That's, that's super interesting. Um, we will get to that <laughs> in a second, I'm sure. Um, we know that languages are a huge part of your life just by getting to know you through um, the Language Lovers AU community um, and also just being exposed to some of the work that you've been doing um, through your podcast and some of your series that you've been working on as well about languages. Can you tell us a little bit about your kind of various language studies, the languages you know and, and that you speak? Yeah, I mean, languages are a huge part of my life and they always have been, um, even from a young age. Um, and I guess this is just natural inclination because through schooling in Australia, you don't really get exposed to a lot of languages if you go to like regular public school and Catholic schools, which is what I had when I was young. But, um, you know, and I always kind of valued, even from a young age, being bilingual, actually. Like it's there's kind of a common narrative around that, you know, growing up in Australia, it is very hard speaking a minority language, especially if you experience racism as well. So people often associate you know, that speaking that language is, you know, a kind of a source of pain. But that's not really how I felt about it growing up. I always really liked having another language. I didn't kind of attach those kinds of feelings to it. Um, and so, yeah, like I always wanted to be better at Vietnamese than what I was because so, you know, in my situation, my parents came to Australia as resettled refugees um, in 1980 from Vietnam. And that's the language we spoke at home. Like they came as adults, like they were like almost 30 by the time they arrived. So their mother tongue is yeah, absolutely Vietnamese and English is a second language to them. Um, but of course, like because I was born and raised in Australia, like going to school, English becomes very dominant from a young age. 
So English is my primary language basically these days. But um, Vietnamese is, you know, I'm, I am bilingual and I speak it pretty well. I understand it better though than I would say than how I speak it because I don't really get that many opportunities to speak it and, and in a range of contexts in Australia. Um, yeah, but then even, you know, from school, you know, getting to learn a little bit of, um, I think the first language I ever learned outside of Vietnamese um, was Italian. And even that tiny bit of Italian was fun, you know, I always enjoyed it. I mean, it was it's kind of useless as well, the way we were taught, because I felt like through year four to year six, I don't think I learned more than like 100 words or something. Um, but I was kind of valued that kind of class experience as well. Um, and then when I got to high school, I got to do a year of French and I loved that, um, really loved French. But it was really unfortunate because my school didn't really offer it past that. And I think that's um, quite typical in Australian schools too. I mean, unless you go to a private school or you go to a school that's really good with languages. Basically, I just got one good year of French. Um, but I was kind of, I have a bit of a love-hate relationship with French anyway because, um, because of the history in Vietnam too, like, the, you know, French colonised Vietnam. And so there are quite a lot of French borrowings into the um, the language the version of Vietnamese I speak anyway, not so much, I think, contemporary Vietnamese. Um, yeah, and so anyway, so those are sort of my early languages. But then, I don't know, I just kind of always wanted to learn more. And so at uni, I didn't learn language at uni, actually. I, I ended up learning linguistics. So I have a degree in linguistics. And I particularly love sociolinguistics. But I also kind of thought learning things like phonetics and phonology was really fun and um, you know, language acquisition. I studied psychology as well. So I kind of liked where those sort of areas met. And... I guess to cut a long story short, basically over the years I kept learning more languages. So I've done like courses in like Spanish because I was traveling to Mexico and Guatemala. I learned Italian for three months when I lived in Belgium because I was moving to Italy for three months. I didn't learn Dutch formally because I figured like in Belgium and the Netherlands where I was living for a time, I didn't need to learn Dutch. And I kind of picked a little bit up by osmosis anyway. Um, I've also learned Thai quite a lot because I lived in Thailand for a while. So I had a Thai tutor. Um, twice a week um, I learned how to read the alphabet um, my accent was really quite good um, because I speak a tonal language already um, and then probably the final the, the most recent language I've learned like in a class like a kind of a classroom setting was Chinese so I did a course in 2016 at Sydney Uni through the Confucius Institute I did like a 40 one of those 40 hour courses um, and actually it was probably the easiest language of all the languages I've learned I think maybe aside from Spanish which was also um, I found kind of easier um, but Chinese was great because as a Vietnamese speaker, and it was me and the other Vietnamese girls um, in, in the class, we had the best accents because for us it was quite easy, um, whereas I think a lot of people really struggled if you didn't have a tonal language up your sleeve mm -hmm. already. Um, but if I had time in my life, which is really hard to come by, I wouldn't mind learning a bit more Chinese. Um, and if I could also learn Arabic, that's probably the other language that's kind of high on my list. that has been on the list for ages. But in the area I live in, there's quite a lot of Arabic speakers around. So I'm kind of keen to pick up a little bit more Arabic if I can. Oh, that's just the most mind-blowing list, isn't it, Beck? <laughs> yeah, sorry. Yeah, love... <laughs> it's over the top. It's no, no, it's, it's great. fantastic. I, and I love that over, over different periods of time where you lived in or spent time in different places, it didn't have to be a very long amount of time. Like you didn't say, oh, well, I'm moving there for two years, so I'm going to have to learn this language. Like it, it was just a few months at a time sometimes and you still made an effort to, to try and learn the language of the place that you were going to. It's fantastic. Yeah, well, I mean, for Italy, like so, so the, the reason why I had this amazing experience, like oh, I guess it was almost 10 years ago now, so I got this scholarship to do a master in bioethics, um, and it, and and the program occurred over three countries. It was, which I think is probably one country too much. It would have been great at just six months and six <laughs> months, but it was like six months in Belgium, two months in the Netherlands, and then three months in Italy. 
And then everyone kept saying, oh, in Italy, people don't speak English very well. Like, this is what people would say. And so I thought, okay, that's, I mean, and I, and I figured that anyway, yeah, it's true that in Belgium, I mean, Belgium is the most multilingual place, I think, in Europe, one of the most multilingual. And so I did this course. Um, so I, I was doing my master's program in full-time studies, but then they, um, the Belgian government really value languages. So it was super cheap to learn a language. It literally costs, I'm not kidding, like it was like five bucks or something for three hours of language instruction on a Monday night. And that place was packed. It was like, you know, there were heaps of people who just learned languages as a hobby. Okay. And so this was a, a very humbling experience in my life where, um, you know, I was in a classroom of people, mostly Belgians, of course, um, and there's probably like 20-odd people. I'm pretty good with languages in the Australian context. I was literally the worst student in that classroom because by the time people are learning Italian, it means they pretty much have knocked off five other languages before that. So, yeah, so Belgians <laughs> already speak, I mean, especially in the Flemish half, they're probably a bit more multilingual than the French-speaking half even. But So they already know Dutch and English and French, so that's probably pretty solid. They would have done Spanish already as well. Um, they probably know German. And so then we get to Italian. It literally is like the sixth language. So for them, I just felt like I was I was just keeping up. You know, I probably didn't put more um, enough time to homework, but I could see that I like I was I felt like I was struggling a bit. Um, and I just thought, oh my god, like these Belgians are so good at languages. They're just so able to switch between. I saw that when I lived in you know in Belgium, and I had all these classmates who were from Europe. I was so envious of their ability to just like code switch so easily so that they'll be speaking to one person in French, then they'll turn their head and then they'll be speaking Italian to someone else or whatever. And it was just so effortless. And I was just like, man, like if you're growing up in Europe, you, I mean, depending on, not, not everyone has this experience, of course, but if you have to go to a decent enough school, you probably at least learn two other languages at school. And then you'd have opportunities like, you know, through the summers to travel. Um, and, you know, so I think that's one of the beauties of like, European life anyway is the language aspect which is the best thing about Europe for me they have geography on their side too and I'm all, I'm I'm completely envious as well I think you summed that up really well <laughs> I'm, I'm so envious I saw this um <laughs> I saw this well I guess is it is it a meme I suppose it was a meme um of like a it was a map of Europe um that somebody had like tacked Australia onto this is around about Eurovision someone was like Europe when Eurovision is on it's like Australia is like France distance away from the UK and um and I was like oh what a dream can you imagine if it was actually like that <laughs> I know yeah, that's crazy and so that's why I'm like you know so I, I lived in London for a year too and obviously in London I didn't need to learn another language but it did amaze me how like English people were really bad at languages too and so this, that's the Anglo kind of you know English mindset right so that's we've kind of got that kind of influencing Australia as well because for me, like, if I lived in London, you could catch a train to France in, like, three hours. You could spend, like, a day trip there and just, like, you know. So if I – and I do have one English friend who's, like, French is amazing and she married a French guy too. Um, but most of the other, like, English people I encountered that year living there, they're all just, like, terrible with languages. And I was really disappointed, though, because I was thinking, but you have geography in your side. How can you still be bad at languages? And then I realised – I mean, I guess over time I realised that is, like, the kind of the English mindset that you know languages are hard and like you know not for them and like why would I need to learn another language anyway so of course it's not surprising we have a kind of similar sort of attitude kind of in our kind of institutions and our schools here yeah yeah big time um I can tell just by the way you talk about you know your different experiences to do with the different things you've been able to tackle career-wise that languages kind of feel like a bit of a thread through the different elements of your very very varied and interesting career is that was that is that a 
a correct kind of assumption and do you feel like languages are always there in whatever kind of field you're working in or whatever project you're undertaking? Yeah, I mean, languages are fundamental. And I mean, I did, I mean, I could have studied a PhD in language, for example, or linguistics. But at the time, I didn't feel that was quite the right thing for me either. Like, I just, I think my love of languages is probably something a bit more, like, less academic in a way. It's just something that's just kind of like a passion, right? Like, I just love languages. And I feel like it makes life, you know, more interesting and rich. And I'm always, like, quizzing people about what languages you speak. And it's just quite natural for me. Um, and so, like, for example, like, the one thing I did really love about working in healthcare, and I, you know, I'd like to gra- gravitate back towards it a bit more because I haven't really been working that much, you know, over the years, um, is like when I was working on healthcare campaigns, like or health promotion campaigns, I loved working on the ones which involved languages. Like, you know, there was one campaign where we got to sort of have this committee looking at, um, you know, shisha or nagile, right? So the you know, to, you know, water pipe tobacco. And so we'd have people um, who were Arabic speakers we were consulting with. And, you know, I loved learning about, you know, that's when I started to learn more about Arabic dialects as well. So, you know, we had two Jordanians on our committee. But of course, then they were talking about how then Egyptian Arabic, you know, is understood differently. And then, then I, and in the area I live here, it's like mostly Lebanese um, Arabic dom- dominant. So that's quite a different variant as well. And so those sort of, you know, things always really piqued my interest when I was doing, you know, health promotion work. Or, I mean, then I guess I've also sort of been forced to become a bit better Vietnamese, actually, because of the work that I do. Um, and I would, and in fact, probably, even though I'd love to learn Chinese again or Arabic, probably the next language on my list is actually Vietnamese. Like I really need to spend some time really trying to improve my own language skills because I kind of plateaued a long time ago since I never had formal education in Vietnamese. Mm-hmm. So my reading and writing was limited. But um, as an adult, I did do a course some years back. I managed to find a course in Sydney where I got to do 10 weeks and I really, and I, it actually was amazing how quickly I managed to like learn how to read well. In, in 10 weeks so um but I've got so far to go to really read a novel for example I bought Harry Potter in Vietnamese recently and so um, I was told that that's a good one to tackle if I want to improve my Vietnamese and it sounds really hard and daunting but yeah next year I was thinking I might start slowly reading it probably taking it like five years but I'm gonna do it it's probably this thick isn't it like <laughs> yeah I mean and then yeah, yeah but it's like meant to be for children right but of course like I didn't even have a basic education in Vietnamese like um, even though I grew up in Australia and there are Saturday schools, like my parents didn't send me to Saturday school. Mm-hmm. So it's more I've had to learn just through osmosis and, you know, and, I, and naturally, I guess. But I guess I would still say that um, even regardless, my understanding of formal Vietnamese is not too bad. Um, but because I just never had to read or write much, that's where I'm really weak. Yeah. Yeah. What's yeah. that What's that feeling like when, because I suppose when you are, if you're a young, sorry, as a child, when you're speaking with your parents um, on a day-to-day basis, I suppose the, the vocabulary that you use and probably the grammar that you use in a language is somewhat limited. Like you, you speak that language, but of course in this really um, isolated kind of context if you're really just talking to your parents. As an adult and when you mentioned before having like done a course where you start, where you were able to do a bit more writing and reading, how does, how does that feel when you start to realise that the, the vocabulary is wider and the grammar possibilities are wider than, I suppose, the, the possibilities that you knew from what you would interact um, with your parents? Um, in yeah, I mean, that's a, uh, absolutely, that's a great question. And, I mean, I guess everyone, though, I mean, growing up, you don't kind of realise in some ways, like, how your family might be different or similar to other people, right? So that's a general thing. And I think most families develop their own way of speaking to each other, whatever language it is. Um, but then, of course, then, yeah, so in this case, when I'm trying to sort of grapple with my, you know, Vietnamese language skills, I start to see how limited the contexts in which I can use it are because 
when you're speaking in a family environment, there's often, and a lot of Vietnamese people talk about this, especially people, you know, like me who are second generation, where you're kind of used to that um, kind of hierarchical way of speaking, like that you address yourself as bong, which is child, and then your parents are like, you know, they're your elders. And, you know, you're not, you don't know how to kind of speak as an adult or like, you know, be able to sort of extend yourself more. So, but, but you start to feel, I mean, I started, started to feel this a lot, especially as a teenager when, then life got, you know, then your, your thoughts become more complicated and then suddenly you think about politics and then you're arguing, like I was arguing with my dad about, I don't know, I remember at the time I had a really awful argument about September 11. So I guess I would have been um, about 19 or 20 then or something. And I just didn't have the words. Like I just couldn't um, express myself as fluently and as fully in, in English. And so that's, and that's when you realise it's so hard to like really fully communicate as well um but it's not just about language because i mean even if you speak the same language to your parents there's no guarantee that you can actually you know argue properly or you know have respectful conversation anyway um that come that takes a lot of work to build but um yeah but i definitely thought the language thing got in the way a lot um like i just felt frustrated a lot growing up and i wished i you know could speak more and i mean i had a real desire actually to go to vietnam from a young age in my early 20s and I thought about going overseas I, I applied for like a volunteer scheme with the UN but my dad was really unhappy about that he actually did, you know he threatened to disown me if I went so this is like a big defining moment in my life and I looking back now I wish I'd just ignored him and just gone anyway because I would have loved to spend time in Vietnam in my 20s like um, early 20s to just really get to know where you know my family came from and also my language skills probably would have improved a lot if I'd lived in Vietnam so it's probably on the bucket list of the last country I probably would like to have a stint in so we talk about a lot at the moment like my husband and I and because we've got two young kids now so my kids are two and five how we need to move to Vietnam for a stint um I don't really feel like I could ever repatriate or anything like that but I would love like solid six months of just living in Vietnam the kids go to a bilingual school we immerse ourselves um I, I don't expect them to become fluent like I can like I am like it kind of with every generation it gets kind of worn away a little bit especially living in Australia but it'd be cool to like just, you know, for them to pick up a certain kind of level of fluency anyway. Mm. And, you know, I'm trying my best to, and I think I've done a good job of kind of normalizing language in our household. So my daughter just understands like, you know, and she goes to school where 99% of the kids speak other languages actually. So it's a, it's a pretty much non-English speaking background school, but it's good. Like it's great that even if they're not speaking um, Vietnamese, they speak Arabic or they speak other languages like Urdu or whatever. So my daughter actually thinks it's normal to have another language. Like, um, we haven't quite explained that, you know, for example, my husband's family are English monolinguals and that that's, you know, I don't think she quite, we haven't gone and gone there, but we say that he's from an English speaking background and that, you know, I'm Vietnamese. And so my, my daughter understands that she's kind of both. Um, but um, yeah, but I definitely have kind of really drilled into that languages are, are super important and all our friends and neighbors, like they speak other languages and that's fine and that's cool and I think that she really gets that so she's not afraid of language basically is what I'm trying to teach her Mm. I reckon that's that's such an amazing thing as a parent to be able to give that to your kids because even if they don't pick up the language that you want them to or they don't you know develop you know a high level that you kind of have this hope that they will deep inside you know that they've got that kind of love and that appreciation and understanding of you know why it's awesome to learn a language and I think you know even down the track they might you know come back to that one day 
So I think, yeah, I think that's really amazing. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, I'm, I mean, look, I, I don't know if you can force these things exactly in your, in your kids, but I mean, I guess that it's like just like everything, right? But it's like about your sense of your values that you're trying to communicate. But like, I mean, for example, I, my, I think my daughter does seem ranged in language, actually. Although I've kind of felt like my son seems even maybe slightly better. But I, but I feel like I, do, I make less effort with him because it's harder with the second child. It's much easier when you had an like basically she was an only child for three years. So I could invest all this time and, and, and energy into it. And then I've kind of fallen away because I'm tired now. Um, but um, And, and two-year-olds have their own issues anyway. Yeah, but lately, but lately he's getting it. Like, I, And I'm quite explicit. I'll just ask him. And, I'm, look, and I basically, I guess, you know, there's all these models around. We can talk about it more about, you know, one parent, one language. It's impossible for me. I just am not quite fluent enough in Vietnamese. And so I just basically mash languages together constantly. Um, but it's not just that, but I also then talk about other languages too. So that's, that's, that's how I've normalized the idea of language in the household. So, cause I know some French, you know, like, cause I, you know, learned some in school and then later on in life, I've learned other French courses as well. If French ever comes up, we talk about that's French. That's what French people say. Or if it's German, that's what German people say. So like that is a, a very constant thing in the household. And my husband too, actually, like, so he's from an Anglo background, grew up in Sydney, but actually he learned Chinese as an adult. So he has pretty decent, um, Mandarin, like Chinese. So he's, yeah, I was at intermediate level. Um, and he also learned Thai because we were living in Thailand together. So he's got quite a good head for languages too. And he's also learned Indonesian and French as well. So he's a bit of a language nerd like me. So I think that that feels quite effortless, I guess, between us, like to just sort of normalize at least the idea of language because the goal isn't really fluency. Like I'm not really so hung up on that because that's so hard and you need to have certain factors. But I just love the idea that she just appreciates language, just like food and that too. Like that's how... That's how it is in our household that we eat a very cross, you know, multicultural diet, um, which I have a bit of anxiety about sometimes because I think I don't cook enough Vietnamese food actually. But um, but languages <laughs> are the same. Like they're just kind of a, you know, like we're growing up in Southwest Sydney. It's like one of the most diverse places on the planet. Like the kind of you know, in one square kilometer here, you're kind of encountering like you know 50 languages. It's crazy. Um, and it's I think amazing. that people who are afraid of that, I guess they don't know what they're missing out on. Is kind of how I feel. I love that that mash policy. That's you know I like that. It's not OPOL. It's like mash. That's great. Let's let's trademark that. No, it's more realistic, you know. And I, I mean, if you can do one parent one language, good on you. Like that's it's such a you know difficult standard to me. But of course, if you're a first generation migrant, and your native tongue is like a, you know a language other than English. So of course, mm. like it's much more natural for you. And even then, I mean, heaps of parents who struggle with that too. And then they, you know, you feel like a failure then. Whereas I'm a bit more forgiving on myself, actually. So I just realized ages ago, like, this is no way that's ever going to happen. But I have to create opportunities. And that's why, um, you know, going to Vietnam is going to be really important. I mean, COVID really obviously put a dampener on that. But we've rebooked the trip. So we're going to Vietnam for a month at the end of the year. And, oh, and primarily that's because of just language, really. Like, I would say that's probably my motivating factor. Like, I, um, I read on a forum that you can put your kids in part-time daycare. And so I was like, great, but I get to have a break too, which is good. Um, but I also thought that's language exposure. So I've already prepped my daughter and I said, look, when you go to this um, daycare with your brother, um, you won't understand everything that happens. Like, you know, because she does have um, some okay passive understanding of Vietnamese. She certainly has some vocab, probably knows a few hundred words minimum, probably a bit more. Um, but, and I said to her, but you'll have the best English in the, in the daycare, but you'll understand things more and you'll feel better about speaking. So I'll, I'll see how it goes. That's the experiment. Um, it's not very long though. We're gonna, she'll only be in that. Um, her and her brother will only be in daycare for like three weeks, basically, and probably like three days a week for three weeks. But I'd be curious to see what kind of impact that has because we haven't tried that before. We haven't been to Vietnam in, in the last yeah. few years. So um, yeah, and and, then, and and with her brother, he'll be like even younger. So I wonder if that's even easier for him in a way because he hasn't got that 
self-consciousness yet about you know language in a way because it's of course he speaks English and but I don't think he's quite you know got any sense of shame or normally like you know that's the thing I've had to talk to my daughter about at some point she did come home and say just speak English just use normal language and I said no but normal English is not normal it's like yes it's the language we speak but all languages are normal and so you know I had gave her a lecture for about three weeks about that topic <laughs> because she was she was picking up from daycare um yeah a couple of years ago and so yeah I think I've managed to beat that out of her now so she understands she would never dare say that this is normal and that's not that it's hard though I mean I, I mean I I don't want to be too hard on her, but I, do, I definitely do talk about these things a lot with her. I think that's, yeah. a, that's a great thing to have that kind of exposure though and also to have those conversations with your kids even when they're very small because for them to have an understanding of, you know, the word normal is always such a it's I feel like it is just the start of so many tricky situations <laughs> because you know for whatever it is that you define like what even is normal anyway um and of course we get very used to as young people I think having an idea in our minds of what normal is um and earlier when you mentioned like normalizing the fact that you would have multiple languages in the house or multiple languages in the community and that your neighbors and your friends and you know all have different languages speaking at home like that's a really beautiful and very realistic I think way of considering what is the normal um of like the multi- cultural and multilingual Australia that that we all live in um so that's a really a really nice thing to do and I think a a lovely way to encourage your kids to understand that that's that's the this is the place in the country that we we reside in together I mean yeah and I I mean I do feel constantly the limitations of living in Australia too like there's so many things that I wish it could were better but I definitely do value that kind of you know multilingualism that we do have even if it's not very well encouraged by I guess official channels, but it does exist. Like, and that's why I like living where I do. Like, I walk down the street, I always hear people speaking languages. Like yesterday, I was sitting on a train, and the guy sitting next to me was speaking something. I was like, "What is that?" It sort of sounded a bit like Arabic, but the accent was different. So I thought maybe he's speaking a dialect of Arabic, and I wish I could. Ask. And sometimes I will be nosy enough to ask someone, "What are you speaking?" Like, um, <laughs> but I just I feel like that's so that's so rich, and it kind of just reminds me like how connected we are to the rest of the world as well. Um, and because like I guess I've travelled a lot in my life, so. I mean, the, the two motivating factors for me for travel have often been like basically food and language. <laughs> Those are the, the two things. Um, and so, of course, I can't travel anymore in the same way like I did when I was younger. And so, like, being able to just hear that. And I, and I want my daughter and my son when he's a bit older to just really appreciate that as well. And, you know, and they'll be lucky. They'll be able to grow up with those kinds of advantages that I didn't have growing up. You know, I never went overseas until I was 20, basically, like when my, I went as, you know, I was at uni and I'd earned enough money to, to go traveling. But, um, yeah, but of course, like, but then the other benefit that I had, though, which they don't have is I was very kind of immersed in the Vietnamese language community. That's why I'm bilingual, which is kind of a miracle now if I think about it, since it's so hard to have that happen in Australia. Um yeah, but I mean, there's, there are trade-offs. But then, you know, lately we've also been talking about next year going to Europe for like a big holiday, like a six-week trip or something, and then talk about, you know, then we go to Paris and, you know, that's where French people live. And so we, we always talk about those things. And I think my daughter, you know, she'll be lucky. She'll get to go to Paris like when she's like, you know, six, seven years old or something, which is awesome. I think that's so great for her to have that experience. Um, and, you know, but we... I don't know how much she absorbs anyway, but, you know, when I talk about France, for example, like, you know, we, we talk, I don't know what came up the other day, we we're watching something 
and I said, oh, yeah, that's Paris. And I said, yeah, you know, I, you know, I lived there for a couple of months. So this was another experience I had where I lived there for a couple of months and I did do a French language course there for a couple of weeks as well. Um, and that was really cool, actually, because after like a week or two, like it's quite tiring as well, like just hearing French constantly in a classroom. But you do just start to, I don't know, like feel it and speak it a little bit. Um, and so that's, that's the kind of thing like that I want to sort of lay the foundation for for my children like, like you said before, to basically seek that out later in life since they can't have that experience exactly in Australia, but maybe later if they feel like it, that's what, that's what they could do. Oh, I feel like, I don't know, I feel like there's so many things that you're saying that are resonating with me on so many different levels. <laughs> We've got lots of, you know, similar things running through our brains at the same time, I think. Um, I wanted to ask you about a couple of the projects that you've worked on recently. One is an amazing podcast that I've listened to my bilingual family um and you also mentioned before we started recording an abc series on multilingualism that you worked on i think that was last year was it last year it was a couple of years ago now yeah um yes um yeah so tell us a bit about those yeah so um so the first series was called tongue-tied and fluent and how that began was um in 2017 I, i basically just had a baby in fact so she was born the start of that year and but, but basically when I was pregnant, I really started thinking about languages again in 2016. Like it just started to become, and in fact that year I learned Chinese too, so I'm always, I'm always thinking about language, but I started thinking particularly about this problem of Vietnamese in my life, like how would I have the skills to really teach a child Vietnamese? Like I'm, I just wasn't too sure about that. Um, and so that became sort of a question I had. And then during that year, that first year, I was just, it was just in the back of my mind, I was just thinking, you know, and this is before she was verbal actually, and, you know, I, I had started reading parenting advice around language saying, like, oh, you should speak to, you know, your unborn child in your womb in, in language because that's where it starts. And, of course, I did try it. it was, but it was, it was very self-conscious um, back then. I'm, I'm much, I mean, now it feels much more normal for me to just randomly mash in Vietnamese and that. But it didn't feel that normal at all back then because it was just, it was strange. Like, I just didn't speak like that on a day-to-day basis aside from actually speaking to my parents, for example. Um, yeah, but anyway, so then, oh, yeah, so language was very much in my mind. And then there was this kind of um, ABC um, podcast call out. They had this like um, a one-off million dollar fund, they called it. And they're looking for ideas for a podcast series. So um, at that point, I uh, ended up um, connecting with Masako Fukui, who I had met before. And we knew each other a little bit. We met each other at a conference. And then we said, oh, why don't we get our heads together and work on a, a series? And it, and it wasn't that we thought of language straight away. It was something I think I brought up since it's something that's been a long-term interest of mine. And straight away, Masuka was like, yeah, it's a great idea. And then we kind of mapped out a podcast series and we got shortlisted for that, um, for the ABC. And then in the end, we got commissioned to do a five-part documentary series. Mm-hmm. So we called it Tongue-Tied and Fluent and we decided to tackle the topic of multilingualism. So it wasn't about a specific topic. It was about how do languages basically kind of coexist or um, work on this continent, basically. Um, and that's a really satisfying series because in that particular series, we then did like look at kind of ended up looking a lot of indigenous languages as well and I mean I felt like I you know I know when I'm doing something that I really um kind of have learned from when my mindset changes as well in the making of it so by the end I guess how I started to feel like and I kind of worked through a lot of my own sort of feelings around Vietnamese was like I'm not I'm not too worried in a way if I don't pass on Vietnamese because the reality is it's going to be very difficult for me to do that but what I feel strongly about in Australia is that we really need to value our Indigenous languages. Like, that's what's unique about this continent because if I don't speak Vietnamese or my daughter doesn't, it's actually no big deal because there are actually 90 million Vietnamese speakers in the world or more, in fact, in the diaspora as well. 
Um, so there's no burden on me in particular, I feel like, with that language. But then I see how precious language is and how easy you know, it is to lose languages that, you know, when we did this series for the ABC, like I was, we were meeting people and I was speaking Darawal and, um, and other languages too, and you sort of see like how fragile, you know, some of these languages are, they're just, they're just holding on. Um, of course, in other parts, which we didn't go to, like in the Northern Territory, languages are more robust. But, yeah, I just really felt like, you know, we have a really kind of special situation in Australia that we're like this, you know, a migrant nation. It's like hundreds of languages, but, yeah, we also kind of, you know, already a multilingual continent long before that, obviously, for tens of thousands of years. And so I think so that series, if anyone's interested, it's basically it's a documentary series. So we look at the global context and we look at them specific um, kind of aspects of language. And episode two um, is called Bringing Up Bilingual Baby. So that's where we looked at, you know, what is the situation in Australia about trying to raise children bilingually? And we had a really big response to that episode. I think people, um, it really resonated. And so that's basically the basis of the SBS series that we then kind of pitched to SBS a couple of years later. Um, so that was um, basically 2019. Once we'd, we put that series um, to bed in 2019, sorry, and then just, I guess, during COVID, we sort of thought about it again. And, and in 20, yeah, 2021, we started working for SBS on the six-part um, series called My Bilingual Family, which really expanded on that second episode and tried to look at more of the nuances around, you know, raising kids with languages and what are the challenges. And even then, six episode barely scratches the surface of that topic because <laughs> there's so much more you could say. Um, and one topic that we haven't been able to be able to do justice to, which we thought about a lot, was the idea of conflict and language. Because we heard a lot of stories about people's marriages and things which where language is a source of conflict. But it's very difficult to like represent that fairly as well because you really need to hear from all parties and all that. And so in the end, it's a bit of a sensitive topic in a way, so we just kind of backed away slightly from that one. But we did our best in the six episodes with the SBS series to cover like, you know, things like the one parent, one language method, does it work? Um, also just like what if you I mean, one thing that came up which I didn't expect at all, which I really appreciated, was the idea of disability, like there was a, a mum that I'd heard of um, in this Facebook group I run around bilingual parenting and she, um, yeah, was talking about how she, her son's got autism. Yet she's so passionate about trying to teach her son Vietnamese as well and I thought that was a story worth discussing as well and it kind of gives us, I guess, all kind of um, valuable perspective like how there are people out there who really value this and it's actually like extremely hard because their children um, don't kind of, they're, they're, they're neurodivergent, they don't kind of, process language and speak in the same way that kind of you know I guess regular kids do if you want to call that wow yep you um definitely covered a heap of ground in those <laughs> in those series it's really amazing no it's super amazing and, and as you said it sounds like that would just like scratch the surface like there would be so much to say on all of those topics I can hardly believe that you managed to keep it to six episodes <laughs> it was so hard yeah and, and you know and the response was amazing we got such long emails from people like from people who really like were touched by that or really cared. And, but I mean, I knew that anyway, that there's a gap in Australia, like that we don't really value this enough. Like there's like a million parenting related things, for example, but where do you ever see stuff around parenting and language? Like that's such an under-discussed topic. And yet it's such a struggle because I, you know, I'd, I'd constantly ask people because I'm always asking people about language. And a lot of people do struggle with this. I feel guilt about it. Like English is so much easier to basically, you know, once you've kind of been raised and socialized in Australia, it's so much easier just to speak English to your kids as well. Like you have to make a kind of superhuman effort to like revert back to your first language or your mother tongue or whatever, um, especially when you become English dominant. And so there's no surprise in a way that you know, people were writing to us with questions. And I mean, the thing, the thing was really cool actually about some of the questions and um, emails was like some obscure languages turned up. There was this amazing woman 
who wrote who um spoke Tata, which is quite a small language, really. And um and yeah, and yet because once she ta- once she had kids, she was motivated to really reconnect with language. And then so she was translating all these children's books and really was doing her absolute best to like, you know, teach her kids a a very small language in the world. Um, But then there was another woman actually in the ABC series who was amazing, um, um, Trin, who spoke Estonian. So she's a first-generation migrant from Estonia. Her kids speak fluent Estonian, but she put in a superhuman effort. She was really strict on the one-parent-one-language method um, and her husband was very supportive of that and he knew a bit of Estonia himself. But basically, Estonian is a very hard language and it's a very small language. And yet, there's you know there are some kids in Australia right now who are half Estonian who are speaking Estonian fluently. Um, but I, but you can see, but when I talked to her about it, she did think it was funny. Like because um, there's a moment in the podcast in episode two where she goes, "Well, why do you care so much? You're a second generation migrant. Like she wouldn't. She thought like that it was her job as a first generation migrant to do that. But she didn't think it was necessarily like the, the job of the second generation." Um, but I guess my answer was um, a bit dorky, but basically it's because I value multilingualism. Like, I just think it's important that it's language. Um, it happens to be, in my case, that it's Vietnamese that I'm, I can, I'm most fluent in. If I was more fluent in another language, I dare say that would be the one that I would pass on. But, um, but of course, for heritage reasons, it is important for my daughter to have a sense of the language and not feel alienated from it um, because it's, it's a part of who she is. Um, you know, it's half her cultural kind of heritage. But... Um, yeah, but I think um, doing that series was really great for me on a personal level, both series, ABC and the SBS one, because I got to just like um, learn about language um, and, you know, which I never get bored of and just really trying to you know, learn the best way for me going forward and trying to work out what I think about these things um, because it's not really easy. I mean, and I, I keep going back to that, but I do think that's not, it's worth stressing. It is really hard. Like I'm not going to pretend like, you know, that I'm like doing an amazing job at it or something, but I'm trying to do the best that I can with the time and resources that I have. Um, but I do think we should talk about it. We need to kind of have this on the agenda. Like it's people are really worried about things like sleep training or this kind of stuff. And I understand those things are like really things to worry about. But I mean, the language thing is even more important at the end of the day because this is like the biggest gift you give your kids, I think. And it's not temporary in the same way. Whereas, you know, the hardship, and I understand it's really hard in the early years. It's exhausting raising kids. But those things pass, actually. That's the thing. Like they will like eventually learn to sleep and all that. But the language thing, like, that's a lifelong, that's a marathon, that's a lifelong journey. And I do think, like, we could probably spend a bit more time really thinking through that and supporting people more. Um, and, yeah, and I see when I go, and I'm looking at other countries at the moment, and I see that they do have programs like that. They do have workshops for parents. Whereas now, if you want to go to a workshop to try and learn how to teach your kids your, your mother tongue, I don't know where you'd go to, like, because, and I've met people who are first-generation migrants and they say to me, I remember I had this conversation this morning at daycare and she was from Pakistan, I think. And then she said, well, how do you do it? I said, what do you mean? Like, you know, how do you teach your kids your language? And I was like, well, you speak to them. And you... But she was genuinely confused, even though she spoke like three languages herself. She just, for her, because she's so good at English as well, that's the other thing. If you're good at English, it's very easy to just not worry about it. Um, but she was genuinely confused. And I, but I think I understood later when I, because at first I was really surprised. I like, what do you mean? Like, you don't understand but I think, I guess what she was pointing to was that um, it's not like everyone's a natural teacher either. Like, you're not everyone's thinking about like this, like I am. Like, I'm thinking, you know, what values are, you know, how, you know, how do I want to raise my kids? Not everyone's thinking like that. Um, but because it, in other countries, it's more multilingual, it happens naturally. You just do. You don't even think about it. You just speak to your neighbors in one language and you go to school, you speak another language. But in Australia, you, um, unfortunately, you do have to think about it though. It doesn't happen organically um, mm. unless 
you know, you're lucky to be part of some kind of tight-knit community and a religious community, for example, then it can happen a bit more naturally as well. But I don't think that's a lot of migrants don't have that here. You're mm. actually like living a much more fragmented life. You don't have the same kind of immersive language community that is mm. just like, you know, a, a no-brainer back in your home country. Yeah, absolutely. I think that like interesting that you use the word like confused as well. I think for for an adult, considering the considering the whole process of like, well, how do you even how do I even teach my child another language anyway when they're not surrounded by it and being confused by it? You know, though, all of those myths that there are around children being confused by having multiple languages in the home, for example, I think this is where it's come, you know, maybe, maybe this is where it's come from, like that the adults almost overthink it. <laughs> we kind of, we kind of, we're like, but we're confused. Like how, how, how would we even deal with this? So like, how could the child possibly understand what, what to do with all of those languages going on? But of course, I mean, we know, we now know from plenty of studies and stuff that, um, you know, having multiple languages in the home is not something that's going to confuse kids and it isn't something that's going to be detrimental to their to their development or their education or anything like that um but a really a really good point there on like not probably not enough support for parents um because it is a daunting exercise and I think every everyone who we have Penny and I have spoken to on this podcast who has kids and they've talked about potentially having other languages in the home everyone says that it's hard it is hard it's really difficult you can't think that it's going to be this like walk in the park that the kids will just you know overhear things and then be fine um you clearly as parent have to make a concerted effort to ensure that the language is present um in the home um not just not just kind of cross your fingers and and hope for the best <laughs> I mean absolutely and I mean and the other thing I mean I have to say like because of this work I've been doing I mean you know and I, I started linguistics a long time ago but it's really the last five or six years where I really thought a lot about these issues in a really practical grounded way part of the reason why a lot of it doesn't work is because basically it needs to be a two-parent job and um, and often dads are not pulling their weight. That, that's the reality. Like that, it often is mums. I'm not saying all, not all dads, obviously, not all mums. But but that's the reality. Like you know, just like a lot of like languages in domestic work, the same way that chores are you know disproportionately carried out by women, basically in the in the household, or um, or whoever is in that kind of feminine role. I guess if you want to say it, if you're in the same sex couple. But um, yeah, and so I think like I see that a lot, and I talk to people. Uh, and I, so in, in this case, like my, my husband's got a pretty good multilingual mindset too, as I've kind of talked earlier. And so actually one thing he's been doing this year is he's been improving his Vietnamese again. So he's got a tutor in Vietnam, so he does these lessons. And so he's been using more Vietnamese around the household a little bit too. And so, but I think that that also demonstrates to the kids, like, and I guess you can only live by example sometimes. You can't even tell your kids these things. They just have to observe it. That daddy's like learning Vietnamese too, like that, you know, it's a valid thing. And even though he's not Vietnamese, like actually at all, um, that it's okay to sort of just learn these things. Um, and so I think, you know, Josh is trying his best to support me in that way. Um, and, you know, I mean, in fact, if it was Chinese, it'd be so much easier too, because then he also speaks Chinese. Um, and he doesn't, his Vietnamese is much, Vietnamese is harder than Chinese too, I guess I would, I would say that as someone who's now learned some Chinese. Um, but, he um he's definitely on board with the project and so I mean I guess we probably have a, I mean look I guess I have everything in my favor in terms of like you know I've got a degree in linguistics I really care about language obviously my husband's very multilingual himself um and yeah and that's why I think gosh if I'm barely doing it I don't know how other people are doing it like you are you know in this kind of situation it's, it's really really hard but um but I do care about this I, I do and I'm always telling people just whatever you get to your kids is good don't worry about fluency 
even them knowing like a couple hundred words or even a 50 words or whatever, it's really valuable. Like it, it, they should just know some language, oh, I think. Completely. I think that's that's a really, really great point because it's something we often talk about on the podcast too about adult language learning is you have to you have to celebrate your own path and realise that, you know, whatever you're doing is amazing and that kind of fear of, I guess, or trying to not compare yourself to others is actually a really good gift that you can give yourself <laughs> um, and that we should be celebrating all these different approaches and, and knowing that there isn't this one way to do it and that we're all so different. Yeah, and also like perfectionism kind of uh, is a really bad thing I think in general. I'm, I'm really an anti-perfectionist. Um, and so like even when, you know, I mentioned all those languages that, that I've learned, it's not like I speak any of them really, like not really. I mean if I had to survive, I could probably pull out a few sentences and, you know, like in French probably it would be a bit better or Spanish or something. But I don't really speak those languages, but it's not only the point. It's just really about feeling – it makes me feel closer to people actually. I, I guess that's one way that I feel about it so that when I now – here Thai being spoken it feels kind of like home if it was, it was only a temporary home but I feel like this kind of sense of connection um and it doesn't, mm-hmm. it's not like I even necessarily talk to them or say anything although I did the other day I was at and I always do if I have an, um, a chance like if I'm at a market stall and I hear someone speaking I'm pretty good now at hearing like if they're speaking English I can tell it's a Thai accent for example I'm like I, I can tell if it's Chinese or Vietnamese or Thai like those accents are clear to me and so then I realized it was a Thai woman and so then I started you know I don't know, busting out a few sentences in Thai or whatever. And then it got confusing because I didn't say it properly because I'd forgotten a few words. And But then we just had a whole kind of nice moment. And, you know, like I think I kind of really appreciate those kind of connections, even if it just, it just makes life a little bit kind of warmer, especially mm. in a country like Australia where everyone's from every, everywhere. Um, it's really nice when you kind of have a point of connection with people. So, of course, like the, the country that I've spoken about the most probably the last few years since moving to the Bankstown area is Lebanon. So I went to Lebanon in 2014 um, for, wow. just for a week to visit a friend who lived in Beirut. It was awesome, awesome, a great time actually. And so whenever I have any chance to like mention that to someone here, it's always really nice. People were surprised. Like I'm Asian and like you know, people don't really think of, they look at me, they wouldn't expect someone like me to have gone to Lebanon um, or Syria, which I've been to as well. You know, And so that sort of stuff comes up a lot. And you know, for me, like that's sort of an entry point into language as well because I want to learn more. Arabic just to sort of feel a bit closer to people around here and I thought it was a real win recently because I was helping out at the local one um at my, at my daughter's school at the you know we had a, a fundraising thing on election day so I was you know raising money for the PNC and uh, a lot of the women who are helping not all of them but quite a few of them spoke Arabic and then they kind of match languages a lot I've noticed like they their English and Arabic is really quite interwoven so I mean, I don't think I could say it without feeling self-conscious, but they'll say, oh, mashallah or inshallah or whatever, um, uh, whatever. And then I kind of, but I, hearing it that day, I kind of understood now how those things are used better. I kind of thought, okay, I understand now. And at some point, you know, a woman just said something like, um, uh, do we have any more uh, khubza or something? And I was like, oh, that means, and I thought, oh, that's bread. Actually, it's one of like the five words I know. And I just responded to her. I said, oh, there's more in the kitchen. And I thought, how cool is that? That I knew like one Arabic word that was useful in that moment. Um, <laughs> so I don't know. Maybe this is like this is how I get my kicks. But I really love it when I can understand like a word in another language, <laughs> and it just makes me feel really good about myself. But I, love that. I feel like this is how we all get our kicks. <laughs> but you understand. You got, I know I'm speaking to people who get this. Like, and this is like I'm being super nerdy, like language person right now. But this is how I feel about language, and it's just it's. It's authentic. I don't know how to explain it. It's a spinner exactly. thing. I know you get it too. 
um and then you know, when I was young I always had this desire like I remember from a young age I like my only superpower I wish was I could speak every language I remember thinking that and that's just so mm. geeky where people want to fly I'm like I don't care about flying I just want to speak every language <laughs> in the world and maybe that was because I did grow up in a multicultural area I mean I, and I, I really am grateful for that because I'm just my earliest years were in Lakemba and I went to Catholic schools and Catholic schools actually are super multicultural places um especially um the part of Sydney I grew up in so that's off like I guess through osmosis I was it kind of normalized as well that people spoke different languages and I thought that was kind of cool um even if I didn't probably express it like that I obviously felt it because you know I was always inspired to learn languages but anyway it yeah stayed with you yeah, yeah like I, said, I guess it is how I get my kicks like you know and I have and a lot of my travel stories you know like the good ones anyway often involve some kind of language related thing like um you know standing on the street and you know saying a few sentences in Spanish and people understanding you and the, that's probably the highlight of my entire two weeks traveling through Mexico or something you know like just having that kind of random exchange in Spanish um and then actually realizing too I'm like I'm wasting my time with French French is so much harder than Spanish like Spanish is actually a lot easier, I think, for an English speaker, mm. um, and then because I and also because it's so intimidating using French in France as well is what I've realised. Um, it was easier using French in Morocco when I was desperate because there was a guy I, I had this interaction with and he couldn't speak any English. He just spoke Arabic and French, and I was like, oh my god, I guess I better use French. And so then I'm forced to speak French, and you know, but of course, like at the time it felt so hard. But of course, what, what choice do you have? And in that situation, it's awesome even having any survival French at all even if it's grammatically incorrect, which I was, but at least we could sort of understand each other um, a little bit and, you know, yeah. yeah. But And you still you still get a kick out of it because you're like, huh, someone understood me. But <laughs> also at the same time, I think, and this comes back to what you were saying before about, you know, um, having a connection with people when you, when you speak another language or when you speak their language in particular. And I know that, like, there is, um, you know, people talk now about how when you – talk to somebody like if they are not an English first language speaker but you speak to them in English um, then it will elicit a more logical response but if you speak to somebody in their own language their first language I'm sorry I should have used probably second language as the first language if you speak to them in their second language it elicits a logical response but if you speak to them in their first language it's much more likely to elicit an emotional response um, in their decision making afterwards and I feel like a lot of us as language learners you can really you can really experience that and feel it sometimes when you when you make an effort to speak to somebody in their language you see how they change and you're right that you get a kind of warmth it makes your experience and connections with other people warmer because i think they do there is a certain level of emotion that they that they put back into the connection with you when you've just tried to make an effort to speak to them in in their most comfortable language um so I I really I really identify with that sense of that sense of warmth yeah yeah and I mean I think this is where like I don't even knowing how to greet people in language I mean look it's always sometimes it's a bit awkward it doesn't always kind of work out right when you do that people like what you're kind of trying to speak to them and I don't know you say good and tired with them people like why did you say that for like it just seems really weird but in other times it can be a real source of warmth so like when I saw this woman I realized she was you know couldn't tie and I was like oh so would you car and then straight away, and then she's like, oh, are you tired? I'm like, no, but, you know, because I, I, I look like I could be tired, of course. Um, but I, I don't know. I'm, maybe this is just, and I guess to answer the question earlier about, you know, language running through things, like I guess I think a lot about language I mean, as a writer as well, right? Obviously, um, I mean, my writing is mostly about English, but I, I would say like a lot, if you, if you actually read my writing, I often do kind of tackle language and 
different way. Like I often reference it. Um, I reference other people speaking languages because it's kind of how I see the world. Um, but I guess, you know, maybe being a writer is also about just trying to understand people, right? Like mm-hmm. that's ultimately what writing is kind of about is, you know, just trying to understand what is what all what is all of this. Um, and so then I guess at that kind of in that language level, like for me, that is just one way for me to just sort of have access to people a bit better. Like, and yeah, just to bridge those divides that, you know, that we kind of have between us naturally, especially as strangers, you know, like, and because I can, especially as, you know, doing journalistic work too, like, um, you know, you often are just approaching strangers to just talk to them and try and understand their world a bit. Um, yeah. And I, I don't know. I mean, I'm just so pro like knowing just, a f- I mean, yeah. And I, but in Australia, people think it's wanky, but I actually think, we need to change that mindset that I think it's good to just know some words and try to use it. Um, like, it can be offensive, of course. Like, um, you know, sometimes I get, um, you know, people go ni hao to me and I'm like, well, I'm not Chinese. But it depends on how it's said. Like, if someone um, says it, like, I mean, in fact, Chinese people do it to me all the time too. They think I'm Chinese, but I look Chinese. And then I have to explain, oh, sorry, I'm not Chinese. <laughs> like, um, but then it can be kind of rude if people are doing it in a way which, you know, you feel like they're trying to, it's kind of almost dehumanizing. But mostly, though, I, I try not to have that interpretation around language. I just think that it's good to try to use languages, like that there shouldn't be kind of some problem with that. Which, But in Australia, we just have a lot of kind of anxiety about this in public space, like, you know, like that you feel like, a, you know, a bit of a wanker, like saying something in French in the right accent or something, oh, you know. Yes. And I, I mean, I have that too. I also feel that yeah. a little bit. I'm like, oh, I don't want to be a jerk about this, but I kind of then, you know, even with French, I would love to, and I think I can pronounce it properly if I really try, but I feel self-conscious about it. Um, but I think we need to get over those things a little bit too and just, like, normalise it. Um, and I don't know. I mean, yeah, so, I, I mean, maybe I'm, I'm just an embarrassing person, but I do just, like, you know, if I see someone Korean, I'd be like, oh, I'm going say, oh, and then they'd be like, oh, you know, they're surprised because I'm not Korean. Um, but I'm just going to risk, like, <laughs> being a bit foolish, I guess. And you sort of have to be if you want to be a language learner, I think. That's the reality. Like if if you're too self-conscious about it, it's really hard to even get past like the first word really. You definitely do. I think I think that we have probably in Australia in particular, I don't know, maybe this is an English speaker thing, but I think in Australia in particular we have this problem, um, is that we've got this kind of tall poppy syndrome where like yeah. nobody really wants to like stick out by by being like, oh, actually I, I, I do speak some French. So I know that on the menu there it's actually pronounced charcuterie, um, not charcuterie. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and then you feel like it's, you feel like a bit of an asshole saying that. Yeah. And then I'm like, oh, no, I feel a bit like... Like, I feel like a bit of a wine cup. But actually, it's like, well, this one would also be respectful. Like, I, I know how to pronounce it, so so then I should. Like, you know, or if you walk into an Italian restaurant and it says on the, you know, menu that you can order some burrata and, you know, if you see that on the menu and even if you don't pronounce it perfectly, but it's probably better than saying burrata. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> but, but I don't know. We, I think we do have a bit of a complex about being like, oh, I don't know if people might think I'm a bit like trying a bit too hard if I if I try and pronounce that properly. Or it's actually it's probably very respectful to, to try and actually pronounce something the way it is meant to be pronounced in the language that it's written or um, expressed in. So yeah, I, I mean, I, and, I, and it must be the same in other English speaking countries too. I think anyway, so it's probably like an English yeah. language thing. So it's not it can't just be Australia. I'm sure the same thing would apply like in the US as well or mm. um, maybe Canada. I'm not sure, but yeah, but yeah, but I just feel like that's like a real 
thing I kind of feel, and I feel all the time too, like I wouldn't I'd be lying if I said like I didn't feel like that too. Like and I'm always tempted to like, you know, because I know a little bit of Italian, a little bit of French, just enough that I could probably pronounce things on the menu correctly. But then you, when it comes down to it, then the, then the waiter comes over and then you go like, oh, you know, like, but I mean, but I, I will sometimes if I'm feeling brave, I'm just going, you know, fuck, I'm just going to, oh, sorry, I'm just going to, I'm just going to um, say it like, you know, how it's pronounced. Um, but it is, yeah, but that must be this, that's the Australian condition. I mean, I think, I mean, all like English language kind of, um, kind of condition as well. Um, but I, I want to get, get over that because I just feel that, you know, we have to value languages, especially like we live in a time where we're losing language, like then. But, you know, there's this kind of great monocultural thing happening too, which is uh, when I say great, I mean like it's big, and I mean it's like an awesome thing. Um, but we're kind of like really like losing our languages in the world. Like that's why you know there's a global language pyramid. The top languages, the top hundred, they're like national languages, so they'll survive. You know because they have all the institutional support. All the small languages are disappearing, dialects. You know, and it's sad. You know because all that goes like history and culture and heritage and. Um, and not just in terms of your own specific heritage, but I mean, I kind of mean like global heritage mm. that we're just kind of losing so much year by year. So in Australia, obviously, there's Indigenous languages. But even like, you know, we think about Italian migrants to Australia, a lot of them actually came speaking dialect. They didn't speak standard Italian. But because there's a sense of shame about that or, about, you know, like there are people who are trying to reclaim that, but it's very difficult to swim against the tide of history too. Like once Calabrian is gone, like it's gone. Like it's very hard in Australia. So suddenly, like, you know, go back to Calabrian now um, when you're even lucky to even get Italian, let alone the dialect as well. Um, I don't know, I guess, yeah, maybe um, maybe I'm just like, I, I also think too much about these things, but I just think it's sad. Like, I just feel like it kind is. of a real sense of loss for the world, like that we don't have more of that kind of richness. I mean, that's one thing I really liked about my time living in Italy. So I lived in Padova, so in the north. Um, so I got to hear like a bit of dialect spoken. So there, there is a kind of a, um, a dialect that's still living um, and, you know, just that's not part of the standard Italian. And I kind of really appreciated like, you know, there's a word which um, people would often say that say, boh. And I can't remember, now I can't remember what it means, but it means something. It's just something like that expression people would use a lot for emphasis, I think, that there is a particular meaning now. But it's one of those things where it's not standard Italian, it's just something from the area that people would just kind of use a lot. Um, and so... Those conversations I would have with people a lot too about, you know, regional identity and, you know, especially at a time of globalisation, like it's hard to sort of work out, you know, what your heritage even is sometimes because, you know, you don't have the dialect anymore. You kind of eat the same food everyone else is eating. You, all your furniture comes from IKEA or whatever. It's like, <laughs> like that globalising effect. We kind of lose a lot of the nuance that makes kind of, you know, life interesting, I think. Sheila, mm. I don't know if you've read um, Language Death by David Crystal. I haven't. Um, no. uh, but I would really recommend it if you're interested in this whole sense of like language loss. Um, I think I, I've mentioned it on the podcast before, um, but it was it is a great read for anybody who feels like is interested in this idea that Sheila's just spoken about of the fact that like there are just this there's this group of kind of very popular languages that are spoken by many many people and are growing all the time and then there's just this massive long tail of um, smaller languages and dialects and um, you know kind of you know almost like older cultural languages that have that are disappearing with their stories Um, and and kind of the 
I suppose the the biology of how that happens. No, I feel like that's the wrong word to describe it, but um, how that's how that's progressing over time. So um, we'll pop a link to that in the show notes. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, and of course, Sheila, we'll also put links in the show notes to your podcasts and anything else that you've mentioned today that might be of interest to anybody who might want to find out a little bit more about um, the work that you've done. Um, where else can people find you on um, online, I suppose, if they want to find out more about what you do? Um, yeah, well, I mean, I, I mean, I'm a sporadic tweeter, I guess, so you can find me on Twitter. Oh, sorry, Twitter, not Twitter. <laughs> uh, on, on Twitter, um, and my, my handle is birdfam, so B-I-R-D-P-H-A-M. And, um, yeah, I mean, I guess, um, I mean, I have a lot of kind of output, I guess, in terms of, like, writing and that. So if you just kind of Google me, you probably see heaps of my <laughs> articles um, and quite a few that touch on like language in some way. Um, probably the one claim to fame I have around um, <laughs> writing a language um, article that went mate, that went viral was the one I wrote for the ABC um, that accompanied the series, and it was all about bilingual parenting. And, and there was different titles for it, but one of them was something like, you know, language is the gift you give your kids. And that one was viewed more than 100,000 times around the world. It's the only viral article I've written in my life. But it did say, like, there was a lot of audience in the U.S., I felt, and I still looked on Twitter, people were sharing a lot from the U.S., so I just felt that this really is a really big topic for the world, um, and especially because of, like, increased migration and everything like that, too, like, it's quite natural over generations you lose it. So, anyway, so if people look that up, that's, like, an article I wrote on this topic, um, and, and I do have plans to, I guess, write and do more on this topic as well, since... It will, it's just going to be kind of with me forever, basically. I can't, I can't escape it. It's just, um, it's, it's fundamental. It's part of you. It's it is part, part of, of me. Yeah, and languages, I think, are just amazing. I think we should really all be learning languages. And I guess, um, my what I would advocate for in Australia is, I think everyone should learn languages. So if you from monolingual background, you should be learning language at school. If you're a multilingual, then you should be um, be able to value what you do have and learn more as well. Um, and I think Australia would probably really grapple with itself a lot better if we actually kind of reckoned with our relationship with languages. Mm. Oh, Sheila, you are an amazing person to talk to. You're a wealth of knowledge. Thank you so much for giving up your time and coming to talk to us on Language Chats. We really appreciate it. No, thanks so much for letting me just go on about language. It's like my favourite topic, so it's such a <laughs> pleasure. And I'm so... And I was going to so say, you thrilled. can join our cheer squad anytime. <laughs> yeah. Like, I love the language community you've built, you know, that you, you all love language. And so, yeah, and I, I really enjoy seeing what you kind of get up to in, in your Facebook group too and just, you know, it's it's amazing what you've built. And, and, and you know, running a podcast is hard work too, so I appreciate, like, <laughs> that you're kind of putting your own time and effort into doing this. Oh, well, thank, thank you, you and thank you so much and thank you to everyone for tuning in to another episode of Language Chats, episode 70, Beck, if I am Ooh, not mistaken. 70. Yay, a little mini milestone. <laughs> um, <laughs> thank you, Sheila, and if you guys would like to um, find out a bit more about the Language Lovers AU community that Sheila just mentioned, you can find us on Facebook. Um, we're also languagelovers.au on Instagram um, and don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss our next episode which will be out in another fortnight. Amazing. Thanks so much, I'm Sheila. We've had a wonderful time chatting with you um, and everybody else. We will see you next time. Thanks, Sheila. Bye. Thank Bye. you. Yeah, come on. Come on, MU. Come on, MU. <laughs> <laughs>